Well, on April 21st, 1980, at the Boston Marathon, a girl by the name of Rosie Ruiz burst into the spotlight after finishing first in the race. And she had run at that time, though no one had had heard the name Rosie Ruiz, she had run the fastest time for a female in Boston Marathon history, as well as the third fastest female time ever recorded in any marathon. So you would have thought that someone would have heard of Rosie Ruiz, but she was an unknown. But as she was swarmed by the the, the press after the race, what viewers and, and interviewers alike found to be even more shocking than her time and her rise from obscurity was the fact that Ruiz was was hardly even winded after the race. She had barely even broken a sweat. Normally, runners can barely stand up and catch their breath for the interview, yet there she stood, barely phased by the grueling race. And this was not the only red flag that people had right away about Ruiz. And most also noticed that she did not have the, the build of a world-class runner, nor did she even have a general knowledge about running when asked basic questions about her training. Well, the story that seemed strange from the start soon began to unravel. The first puzzling detail was the fact that no spotters at any checkpoint claimed to have ever seen Ruiz in the race, and there were no pictures or video footage of her anywhere. The dagger in the heart came when two Harvard students came forward claiming that they saw her burst out from the crowd about a half mile from the finish. Y'all remember this story? Some of y'all probably do. Well, it wasn't long after that that these reports were, were confirmed and Ruiz was disqualified from the race. Though shortly after the race, many were praising her for her efforts. That praise soon turned toward rebuke when they found out that Ruiz was not a competitor. She was an imposter. She was not a superstar, but was in fact the scam artist. She was not a gifted competitive athlete, but was a sly and deceptive fraud. Though Ruiz was scheduled to run, was at the race, dressed the part, even ran a bit in the race, and finished the race, she had not run the race the way it was meant to be run, and as a result, she was disqualified. She was treated as if she was never in the race to begin with. Though she was there, she dressed the part, her efforts were were quickly and easily and rightly omitted without a second thought. And what upset those who organized the race and angered those who were in the race and big fans of this sporting event more than anything else was the fact that Ruiz had made a mockery of one of the most prestigious sporting events in the world. Well, in our text for today, that we're going to look at this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to respond in a similar way to the Christians at Corinth. 
He is going to make similar statements about them and he is going to draw up some of the same conclusions when it comes to the way in which the Corinthians gathered together for worship and the way in which they took the Lord's Supper. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are going to be looking at verses 17 through 34 this morning. And in our passage for today, we are going to learn that in a similar way to Ruiz, the Christians at Corinth were making a mockery out of the sacred ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Though they kept the ordinance on a regular basis, though they showed up, they looked the part, they went through the motions, they too did not partake of it in a proper way. Way And as a result, they too were making a mockery out of this sacred practice. In Paul's eyes, what they were doing was a sham. In fact, he did not even consider what took place in the Christian congregation at Corinth to be the Lord's Supper. He discounted it because of the manner in which it was taken. I wonder what the Apostle Paul would say about us taking it this morning. Well, that's a good question to ask ourselves, isn't it, church? It really is. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to examine this issue and discuss how the Christians at Corinth were desecrating this sacred ordinance. And we're also going to examine our own lives. I'm going to ask you to examine yours to make sure that the way we interact with other believers corporately and privately one-to-one, the way in which we, we view and take this communion meal together each month, make sure that we're doing it in a way that honors God. Make sure that we take this meal in a worthy manner, as our title says. In this passage, Paul gives us helpful advice on how to do just that. He gives us advice on how to honor God in corporate worship and how to approach the Lord's table in a worthy manner. First, he tells us that in order to do this, we must make sure that we do not pervert the Lord's Supper. Do not pervert the Lord's Supper. Look, look at verse 17. Paul says... But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, for those of y'all that think that's harsh, you're right. This is extremely harsh. Now, why does <clears throat> Paul address believers in this way? Well, to understand that, we need to understand a little bit more about the Christians at Corinth. This was one messy, messed up church. They were. For those who say, man, if we could just get back to being the way Christians were in the first century, I guarantee you, they don't have Corinth in mind. They were messed up, folks. They had been heavily influenced by the unbelieving world around them. They had issues with unity. They were a divided church. They had issues when it came to sexual immorality and Drunkenness, their services were disorderly. They're running over one another with their liberties. They're running their Christian liberty way out 
to the edge. And they were in danger of, of falling morally. They were a messy, messed up church. And here Paul makes it clear when it comes to their time of worship, he says, I do not commend you. Folks, that's a huge statement. Paul is one who could find good in some messed up situations. But here, when it comes to the Christians at Corinth, he says, I got nothing. I got nothing for you. He says, when you guys get together for worship, as you gather together corporately as a church, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Now, that's bad. Paul is saying here, things have gotten so bad during your time of worship, it would be better if you just didn't meet. What a statement. Without a show of hands, anybody ever been to a church like that? You go and the pastor is harsh and belittling and pessimistic toward his people and the people are bitter and unloving and judgmental toward one another and you feel worse leaving than when you came? You ever had that experience? Think to yourself, man, it would have been better had I just stayed at home. Unfortunately, there are some churches out there like that, churches that need to reform their ways or close their doors. Paul is putting the Corinthians into this category. He says, if things don't change, it would be better off if you did not meet. That is an extreme statement. It's better for you not to meet than to gather together and do what you're doing. Well, what was the particular problem? that led Paul to make these strong statements in verse 17. Well, he tells us in verse 18, look at it. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. He says, when you come together, when you gather together for worship, instead of being unified and loving toward one another, instead of gathering together for the purpose of encouraging one another and challenging one another to grow in godliness, you guys are just getting together to argue, fuss, and fight. And then notice at the end of verse 18, Paul's not surprised by this. When he received this report, he, he responded with, I believe it. I believe it. And the reason why Paul was so easily convinced when he received this news is because he had already heard. It was, it was news already. This was a divided bunch. He spends the first few chapters of the book addressing their issue of division. He knew they were divided. So the fact that disunity existed between individuals and groups in the church was playing itself out, surprise, surprise, in a corporate setting during their weekly gatherings. And that made perfect sense to Paul. Now, what were they fighting about? Well, we learn about that in the first part of the book as well. In chapter 1, we learn that the Christians at Corinth were divided over personalities, which we can be that way sometimes, right? There was one group saying, hey, we're followers of Peter. Y'all step back, all right? Y'all are lucky to be in our presence. Then another group is like, oh, you think you're so special? We're followers of Paul, the apostle. Others were saying Apollos. And there was even a Jesus group. <laughs> we all know that, right? A Jesus group. Well, we're followers of Jesus. Paul says if you were, you wouldn't be as divided as you are, right? So they were refusing to associate with those outside of their group. They were divided over personalities. They were also allowing petty 
personal matters to divide them as well. They were allowing petty disputes to rob them of genuine and loving Christian fellowship. In chapter 6, we learn they were taking one another into the secular courts. Chapter 6, we're told that. They were suing one another over petty issues. And we also learn, we'll learn in a few minutes, that they were allowing socioeconomic differences to divide them. The rich did not associate with the poor and vice versa. But here in verse 18, Paul introduces yet another point of contention. The word translated division in verse 18 literally means to have a difference of opinion, which we all have, right? But they were allowing these differences of opinion to drive a huge <clears throat> wedge into their fellowship. They had allowed themselves to be divided in almost every way possible. Now, in verse 19, Paul makes it very clear. He makes a very interesting statement about division. Notice what he says, verse 19. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, that's kind of an interesting statement. Paul kind of gives us a, a side note about division. He shows God's sovereignty in it all. Sometimes it's tough for us to see that. But here he shows that at times God allows for division to exist within the church to show who is genuine in the faith. And this is a good way for you to examine yourselves today, believers. When there is division within the church, are you the cause of it? Are you in the middle of it? Do you take sides bringing about an even greater division? Do you do that outside the church, in your homes, in the family, with your friends? Are you bringing about greater division or are you being a peacemaker? Are you causing problems or making peace? The way some of you will answer that question will be very, very telling to where you are spiritually. In this book, Paul calls for the peacemakers in Corinth to step up, to show themselves, to prove the genuineness of their faith by coming forward and combating division with peace. Now, up to this point, some of y'all are scratching your heads a little bit in case you've read ahead. You're probably wondering what on earth this has to do with the Lord's Supper, right? I mean... That's what this service is all about, right? That's why we've gathered here around the table to eat together. The title of the sermon is called Taking Communion in a Worthy Manner. So, so what, is, what does this have to do with taking the Lord's Supper? Well, once again, this is where context comes in. And this will help better explain why we did what we did today. Back in the first century, when the Christians at Corinth, other Gentile and, and, and Gentile and Jewish people, congregations gathered together in the first century sources indicate they took communion at least weekly some believe they took it every time they gathered together and in Corinth communion was normally accompanied with a meal okay so you would have a worship service you would have a meal like we had this morning and at some point during the service you would have communion and that's what we're going to do today so we're just kind of recreating what they did in the first century, okay? So when Paul explains that the Christians in Corinth were divided and, and disunified as they gathered together for worship, it's implied here that he's talking about a service like this, where there would be uh, 
eating and fellowship and where there would be the preaching of the word and communion as well. And communion is where Paul places his focus in the following verses because for Paul to be divided as a body of believers when approaching the Lord's table was a detestable offense. And it is to God as well. We're going to see that here in a moment. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Another harsh statement, right? He says, when you gather together, you can call it what you want, but you cannot call it the Lord's Supper because that is not what you're taking. He says, you may be eating some bread and saying some things and drinking the communion wine and saying some things, but that is not the Lord's Supper. He says, it is impossible for you to take communion together being as divided as you are. He says in verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Oh my. In the church. Sounds like a pretty lousy, unspiritual gathering to me, right? They weren't even sharing their food. That sounds like a lousy potluck to me. Guess everyone kept their own dish, right? And for those who did eat, they gathered together in these segregated groups. They're a divided group of individuals. Paul says, you also have the, the rich eating all of the, the bread and drinking all the wine to the point of getting drunk while the poor doesn't even partake and goes home. Paul says, you call that communion? Where's the community? You say you're taking communion, but you're eating by yourself. You refuse the poor, and the only time you communicate with one another is to argue over differences. Paul says, what a sham. What a joke. You should have stayed home. How can you celebrate the fact that God has brought you together in him? He has broken down that dividing wall of hostility through his death and resurrection when you're so filled with division. How can you claim to be one with him as you take the bread and the wine when you're divided over the smallest and the pettiest of things? How can you celebrate the fact that you are righteous in Christ when you're openly and outwardly sinning against God by getting drunk off the communion wine? And Paul, at his wit's end, in verse 22, says, What? <laughs> what am I to think about all this? He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He's being sarcastic here, but what he's saying is, is the reason you're acting like a glutton and a drunkard in the church because you're not being fed at home? Then he says, or do you just despise the church of God and do you just want to humiliate those who have nothing? He says, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? Shall I praise you for this? No, I will not. Paul's extremely upset at these abuses. He is clearly disgusted in the way in which the Corinthians have made a mockery of the Lord's table. And I know what some of you are, are thinking this morning. What does this have to do with us? I mean, when we take communion, we're not leaving anyone out. We're not hogging all the, the, the bread or the crackers, right? We're certainly not getting drunk off the grape juice. 
So what does this have to do with us? Everyone's eating today, right? Well, let me ask you this. Are you taking communion with someone you have issues with in this church or in the first service? Are you taking this meal with someone you refuse to speak to because of some situation in the past that you refuse to get over? Are you approaching this table with harsh and bitter feelings toward a leader in the church, the pastor, elders, deacons? Do you have issues with the brother or sister in Christ outside of this congregation? A part of another congregation that you refuse to forgive. Many of you hear that and you say, oh, that's not the same thing, is it? Really? Tell me what's different. What's different? Believers, as we take the Lord's Supper today, let's take it in a worthy manner. Let, let's take it in a way that honors God. Let go of those feelings of, of superiority that you have and humble yourself before your great God and King. Let go of the bitterness and the unforgiveness that you have and, and seek to restore relationships that have been broken and do it in light of what God has done in forgiving you through Christ Jesus. He can forgive us, believers, for who we are were Christ could lay down his life for our sin the perfect man the God man how much more so should we be gracious and show mercy toward others pleading with you today to do that for your sake for your brother and sister's sake for for the sake of Christ's Church, make these changes so that God would be honored as you approach the table this morning. Second way to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner is to recapture the significance of the Lord's Supper if it has been lost. Recapture the significance of the Lord's Supper. Again, this is what I love about Paul. Though in the, the previous passage... In the previous verse, even, he's clearly put out with the behavior of the Corinthians. He does not quit on the church. Paul never did. We're very, very quick to quit on the church, right? Lots of times it's over preference. Very little it's over doctrinal things. But we are very, very quick to just wash our hands of the church. Paul never does. I guarantee a lot of us would be looking for the exits. If we entered into that Corinthian church, hopefully you would or you got other problems. But Paul didn't quit on the Corinthian congregation. Instead, he says, you guys, though you pushed me too far, instead of saying I'm out, Paul shows his commitment to them once again by taking time to remind them of the significance of the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. So, to help the Corinthians recapture the significance of the Lord's Supper, Paul takes them back to this key event in Christian history. He takes them back to the upper room during the meal that, that Christ had with his disciples right before his arrest and crucifixion. That's why Paul says on the night he was betrayed, this was that famous meal right before his arrest on, on that night. During this meal, Christ instituted 
the sacred ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And it took place on the same day as another important meal. Y'all know what that is? It place on Passover. Now that was not by coincidence. It was not coincidence that, that these two meals happen on the same day. Jesus intentionally establishes the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover meal. You see, up to this point, when the Jewish people gathered together and they wanted to remember God as their great deliverer, they would go all the way back to Egyptian bondage, back to the Exodus, to their deliverance by God through Moses. But Jesus, in instituting this ordinance, wanted his followers from that point forward, when looking back at God's most important work of redemption, to not go all the way back to Egypt, but to go to Calvary. And during this meal, Jesus wanted his participants to remember four things in particular that we're going to look at. He wanted them to remember his life, his death, and the last two we lumped together, his resurrection and return. So, so Paul explains to the Christians at Corinth that for them to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, they must keep these things in mind. First, Jesus' life. Look at verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, though it doesn't specifically say it here in, in the scriptures, my guess is when Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, This is my body, their jaws probably hit the floor. And the reason why is because before that time, up until this point, they took this Passover meal every year. And during the meal, different elements were held up before they were consumed. And they took them back to them being delivered from Egyptian bondage. And everything pictured certain things about that deliverance. And the bread at that time, before this meal here, it reminded God's people of the fact that the way the bread was prepared, it reminded them that they had to leave in haste. They didn't have time to, to bake bread the way they normally bake bread. They had, to, they had to make it quickly. They had to eat quickly, and they had to leave in haste. It was also a reminder to them that the Egyptian culture was to in no way influence them in the promised land. Every time they took that bread, it reminded them of that. And so Jesus takes the bread, and, and they probably thought that's where he was going to take them. And instead he says, this is my body. What's he doing? He's transforming the Passover into something much bigger, much better than the Exodus. Christ says from here on out, when you take this bread, you're to remember Emmanuel. You're to remember God with us. You are to remember that I was with you. That God the Son took on flesh. He lived among us. He walked with us. He fulfilled all righteousness in our place. You're to remember that every time you take the bread. Remember my body. So that's the first thing. Second thing, Paul calls for the Corinthians to keep in mind as they take communion is Jesus' death. Look at verse 25. Paul says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance 
of me. So the next thing Christ does is he takes the cup and he tells them, I want you to associate this cup with my blood. So he says, when you take the bread, remember Emmanuel, that God took on flesh and dwelt among you. When you take the cup, I want you to remember that my body was pierced and crucified on your behalf for your sin. The blood that was flowing through our Lord's veins was poured out for you and for me, for our great deliverance. He says, I want you to remember that every time you take the cup. And the third thing that Paul calls for the Christians at Corinth to remember is Jesus' resurrection and return. Look at verse 26. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So notice we're proclaiming something as we do this. We're being witnesses, believers, to non-believers in our midst every time we take communion that we are trusting in the great person and work of Jesus. So that's a part of it. But Paul also reminds him a few other things here. This verse reminds us we do not serve a dead leader but a risen Savior. Amen? This memorial is a bit different from other memorials in that we're not just remembering one who died but one who rose again. Secondly, Paul also reminds us that our Lord is not only risen but he is returning someday soon. He tells his readers at the end of verse 26... This meal is meant to be taken again and again until Christ returns. So believers, as we take this Lord's Supper meal today, I, I encourage you, as Paul encouraged the Corinthians to take it in remembrance of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, but also as a celebration in anticipation of our Lord's great return. So we're to keep these things in mind. Paul, in this passage, he has warned the Corinthians about not perverting the Lord's Supper. He has reestablished the significance of the Lord's Supper. And lastly, he explains to them how to properly prepare for the Lord's Supper. Number three, look at verse 27. Paul says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Wow. Now Paul has already explained at length what is meant by taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. He has explained to us that it's, it, taking it in an unworthy manner is taking it with division and hatred in your heart. It's taking it with a sense of superiority over others. It's, it's taking it without realizing the significance of the practice. It's taking it while ignoring the meaning behind it. Paul says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in this manner shall be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What he's saying is this, taking it in an unworthy manner is to dishonor the Lord in the work that he's done. He's saying how you treat this table is how you treat the Lord Jesus Christ and his great work of salvation. That's heavy, isn't it? Look at verse 28. Paul says, let a person examine himself then. We better, right? And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
to make sure we do not dishonor the Lord by making a mockery of this ordained meal. Paul says we need to examine ourselves before taking the bread and the cup. He says do a rigorous self-examination. Examine your motives. Examine your attitude toward the Lord, your attitude toward the Lord's Supper, and your attitude toward those you're taking this meal with. Examine yourselves. Believers, it's so very important that we do this each time because Paul is clear. It's about to get sobering here. Paul is clear that if we fail to do this, we may end up in a world of hurt. Look at verse 29 and 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We learn in verse 30 that the Corinthians were paying the price for these abuses. Paul says, many of you are currently enduring trials, have become sick. Some of you have died because you have defiled this ordinance. Do you see how serious this is? Now, that doesn't mean that every trial and and illness that we experience comes as a result of sin. Just read the book of Job, right? Read how wrong his friends were and the advice that they gave him. No, that's not the case, but at times it does. Look at verse 31 and 32. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, God does not condemn his children. He doesn't. Paul's writing to believers here. He makes it very clear by calling them saints in the first part of of 1 Corinthians. He does not condemn his children. If you've been saved, you're safe and secure in Christ. But that does not mean that God at times doesn't take his belt off to get our attention, believers. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 31. He stresses the importance of examining ourselves so that we do not have to endure God's hand of discipline. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You've got to examine yourself. In verses 33 and 34, Paul ends with one last word on the importance of preparation before communion. He says this, so then my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. So he he says when you come together, make sure you're gathering for true Christian fellowship. Show love toward one another, serve one another. If you're really hungry, eat before you leave. So that when you enter into Christ's church with God's people, you'll be more focused on the needs of your brother and sister in Christ than you are on yourself. That should be our mentality coming into Christ's church. So that when you come together and worship, you take this meal, you won't eat and drink judgment on yourself. And Paul ends by saying, I got more words for you. Paul was never short of words. He said, I've got more for you, but that can wait until I come. But this could not wait, believers. That's how important this is. So he says once again, correct your perversions. Take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Do not take it as divided individuals, but as a a united body of believers. 
Well, this morning I've been primarily speaking to believers. See, the text is speaking to on how to make the proper preparations before taking the Lord's Supper. But now I want to talk to those of you in here who are not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Maybe you're here and, and Christ is not the Lord of your life. If you're here and that's the case, I want to take time to tell you what preparations you can make this very morning to be able to understand and partake of this meal in a way that honors the Lord. God tells us in his word that we are all in need. We are. And though we don't like to admit it, we know deep down that we are. We all have this understanding that something is amiss in our lives. And we've been made more, we've been created for more than the here and now. And God's word tells us what the issue is. The problem is sin. We have, we have rejected God's rule and reign in our life. We have chosen to go at life on our own. He has created us for him. And we have gone after the created things of this world and are extremely dissatisfied in this life because we're not living the life God's created us to live. We have set ourselves apart from God in our sin. God is clear in his word that to remain in this state is to remain against God and an enemy of his with his judgment set against you. If that's you, that's the state you're in right now. And that's bad news, right? But scripture also gives us very good news. God tells us in his word that he has sent his son. Though we turned away from him, he has sent his son. God the son took on flesh for us providing for us what God requires of us, which is a righteous life and a perfect substitute and sacrifice he provided at Calvary. And he conquered sin and death at Calvary and rose again so that we who trust in him alone for salvation can be forgiven of sin and made right with God and have life even though we die in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has done that for us through Jesus. Jesus has accomplished that great work, but scripture is clear for salvation to be yours. You must lay hold of that. You must see that you're a sinner set against God in need of his great forgiveness and rescue, and you must turn from your sin. You must forsake your sin. You must look to Jesus and bow your knee to King Jesus, making him your Lord. If you do that, you'll be saved. 